Let's go ahead and turn into our Bibles where we've left off. We're going to be in 1 Kings. We're closing on it. Today will be the shutdown of it. Move into 2 Kings in the next week. It's been quite a walk, quite a ride. We've learned tons of stuff. We'll be picking it up in verse 29, and it's a continuation of last week. Last week, as is mentioned in today's title, the end of the line for a king deaf, dumb, and blind. Now, it's not going to call him that in the scriptures. We just know that behaviorally, that's what he is showing. And then we also might say, huh, I've been like that myself. I've ruled life the way that I wanted to rule my life, not wanting to have the influence of God over my life. I've seen reflectively in which in doing so, I was kind of like Ahab, wasn't choosing to hear God, and therefore I could not necessarily intellectually make decisions that would be profitable to me. And when I wanted to see things in the light, I could only see them murkily. I could only see them perhaps even as a blind man would. No precision, nothing, no acuity. So when we talk about characters in the Bible, it's always that in them, we can see component parts or attributes of ourselves. Attributes are generally considered to be positives, but there are some who have attributes that are just completely negative. It's just the way they are. Ahab was one of those individuals. Nothing from the beginning was going to be going well for him because he represents a carnal man. In Everest's song, there were two phrases, or at least two words within a phrase, that caught my attention. The pursuit of idols and the approval of men. And so this, in fact, was the snare to Ahab, whose life will be terminated in this scripture. We were coming upon that last week. He was distant from God. He didn't have a father that led him in the ways of the Lord. And so, yeah, we could say, yeah, blame the dead. Well, the scriptures would say every man's accountable to God. And whatever sour grapes you're chewing on and levying a blame against someone that perhaps you want to fault for that, the way life has been for you, Jesus would say to his disciples, the remedy is following him, not per se on the sour grapes part of it. But the word does come in which every man gets to account for himself and what he chose to do with his life, and most importantly, how he could live an extraordinary life in spite of the difficulties of living life. 
because every single one of us here today has been confronted with a difficulty, overwhelming, one that at times imposes itself to even question, is life worth living? And by the way, that's becoming now, unfortunately, an epidemic. Is life worth living? Having just dealt with that issue in a previous church that I pastored, and somebody just giving up and was choosing in their sorrow, and yet one who knows the Lord to threaten to take themselves out early. And that has now led to an all different kind of scenario because there is a psych incarceration which will have its own effect. How do people get pushed and pressed into those kinds of situations in which they just give up? And one of the things that we've seen in leading up to this closure on this chapter is that though Ahab failed miserably from the beginning of his reign, a lineage that he received from his father, we saw the persistence of God through the prophets that he would send. In particular, Elijah was the man who confronted him several times, even on the last occasion in which it was to say that what God was imposing upon Ahab for his disobedience, it would be suspended because Ahab showed remorse, humbled himself, sackcloth, ashes, fasting, prayer. God took notice of that. And the reason that we spent time on that and just clipping it today is because that's always the key. That if we are willing to turn from what we are doing that's contrary to the ways of the Lord, idolatry which manifests itself in a variety of draws, affectations, the things that seduce us, the pleasing of men, what are you gonna do to stay in with that group? to be friends with that person? What is being required of you from them to maintain a friendship which you desire? But the Lord would say, I desire that with you. And so the visitation of God upon what we would say is this despicable king who did horrendous things and plunged his nation into greater sin. We still see the evidence of a loving God where we're picking it up right now is that there was a civil treaty, if you would, between Jehoshaphat, who is presiding over the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. They're the ones that occupy what we would call Jerusalem proper. And Ahab, who's obviously governing the northern kingdom, actually the larger one, but godlessly in Samaria, as we left off last week. There was a visitation from Jehoshaphat, ultimately to where Ahab was. Ahab said, hey, I would like to see if land that we've discovered, which is ours and occupied, if you would pair up with me 
and we could go get it. And you'll remember that in that particular bargaining, it was, well, I am as you are, our people as one, our horses, whatever we've got is yours. I'm sure the same is true of what you have. But let's, let's not be hasty. Let's go ahead and, and secure this with a prophet or two. You have prophets, obviously. And so you remember that in that there were 400. And whatever Ahab wanted, yes, it is the Lord's will. Go, take them. You'll vanquish them. They'll come to ruin. And so all of the voices that were to persuade Ahab and to convince Jehoshaphat to partner with them were in the favor of one who right now, yep, you're going, how did he do that? Deaf, dumb, and blind. He was pursuing that which God had not ordained him to pursue land that had been found that he said he's entitled to. And Jehoshaphat in the visitation does a godly thing. Let's see what God has to say about this. And when he saw the numbers who were approving of the conquest of a land to bring it to Ahab, he says, is there not one other prophet in the land that we might inquire of, and you'll remember one did come. And that prophet in advance was told to speak only the words that would voice unanimity with the 400 other prophets. And in so doing, he presented himself. And remember what Ahab's remark was to Jehoshaphat on that, that appeal. Yeah, there is one, but he's always speaking against me. He only has bad things to say about me and concerning what God wants me to do. Bring it. <laughs> and so as he came before the two kings, he said everything that Ahab's ears wanted to hear. And Ahab, though, knew that he was only chiding him swear that you're telling me the truth okay here's the truth you're going to go into battle you're basically going to die and your sheep are going to get scattered that's what's going to happen and so this prophet was told basically to be taken away thrown in the prison fed with the affliction of bread and water for telling the truth we were equating that that in these days how important it is that truth not be something that's trampled on or dismissed, but actually elevated as so significant an important part of what it is that we do and who we are. But lying has become vogue. Lying has become the justification really for everything that we do as a culture. So here we pick it up. There's a battle that is ensuing. It says this in verse 29. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. This was in foreign hands right now. 
And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and he went in to battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot saying, fight with no small or great, no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. He would have been aware that Jehoshaphat was pairing up with Ahab, but his desire was only for Ahab not to be distracted by any other alliance. Just go after that guy. And so Ahab had basically a target on his back, though he was targeting what you would call an enemy that was occupying a land that historically was his. Again, the problem right now is that Ahab had been told by a true prophet, one who was not lying, God was not favorable towards the acquisition of this land to come into Israel's possession. There could have been several reasons. God also, if he was patient with Ahab, would certainly be able to say, I'm patient with those guys too. They actually will serve me if necessary as chastisement against your people if they continue in their ways. I'm saving them as a chess piece. But he clearly understood that if he engaged in this activity, the word of the Lord that came to him before, which was, I'm going to relent because Ahab has shown repentance. That's what Elijah was told. He's shown repentance. Therefore, I will show a relentance. I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with him in his life right now. I'll catch up on that later under his sons that will follow. And so this is sometimes where people miss is knowing that God is merciful, gracious to forgive. That's his desire. That's, that's how God is wired. But the consequence of what is disobedience does inevitably have a play out. Do I believe that God can suspend and has he shown that the consequence, which certainly in many occasions in the Bible reads as a death sentence or a loss of some type, has God shown his mercy and grace? And it does depend on the heart of the individual that's either wanting to in that moment disregard what has been seducing his heart, defiling his mind, or are they wanting to be given over to it completely? And so there's a consequence. We see that in, the, in these days. Mostly we have seen it evident in our culture where Drug usage is not a big deal. I spoke about that last week briefly. And so men's minds and women's minds and young kids 
are now being robbed of their mind. And if they don't have a mind, they can't make the decision that ultimately needs to be rendered on how to follow God. It's that severe, it's that deadly, of great consequence. So here's what we see in this battlefield scenario. May even see it in our life right now. The captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. Therefore, they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. You'll see in Chronicles that actually he's crying out to God. He's not blubbering. No, not me. He's crying out to God. Lord, I'm in trouble. Remember, he obligated himself to move into a battle experience. Yet he's the one who exercised wisdom, saying there's a prophet that says no. And so what we see here is also a principle that's important to note. And it can be found in 2 Corinthians. It relates very often to marriages, but it's also very important with regard to businesses and and it's simply saying that you're not to be unequally yoked. They couldn't have been more unequally yoked, which is why Jehoshaphat would have been very serious about hearing the word of the Lord. It indicates, though, that his proximity right now with Ahab is endangering him. But it is interesting that the crying out of his voice in a time in which he had the target on his back, he's talking to God. He's crying out to the Lord, and the Lord then changes the circumstance, what we would call serendipitously on literature side, or what we would say providentially, in which Jehoshaphat will be spared. Why would he be spared? Because when you look into the attributes of Jehoshaphat, his heart was right towards God. He didn't do everything in managing if you would, the politics of his day. Part of that probably can be seen in what appears to be an alliance here. But what we do know is he was sensitive when an outcome was looking unfavorable and when he knew that it was God who was his deliverer, he cried out to the Lord. And that's what we see here. It's not a guy whining and wimping out. He actually, in a moment, a battlefield experience for being one unequally yoked to Ahab, cries out to God for deliverance. I wonder, had he not done that, would he have been that victim as well as what we will see Ahab as the intended target will be found? Don't know. But it is interesting to say, I wonder if for us, as a church and culturally, if there are any that would be persuaded, don't be yoked unequally. Spiritually, for certain, if one's not a believer, does not show a heart for God, then you should not be knitted to them. What's already happened? Then you're the evangelist of that heart. You're the one then by the knitting of heart, soul, body through marriage you're the evangelist you're the one that has the greatest influence on that person 
But if not, it means that you have to be on guard in whom you shake hands with. Because inevitably we think we're the stronger ones, but it's actually different than that. And there's loss usually from it. I think everybody's made a bad deal somewhere, haven't you? Was that your fault or God's fault? Chances are it was the fault of the shaking of hands before we knew all of the facts. So he cries out, the Lord allowed there to be the turning back of those who were pursuing him. That's a cool delivery, by the way. Have you ever run so hard from something and all of a sudden you realize no one's following you anymore? It's not following you. What happened? What happened? I can catch my breath. What happened? The Lord intervening. It usually happens around tax time. <laughs> We're going to unleash another 285,000 of them, too. I'm joking. Well, they're not, but I am. A certain man drew a bow at random, and it says this, struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. See, they turned back from Jehoshaphat. They now, it would seem, just fire off an arrow. That's what it's saying right now. In essence, it's at random. It wasn't by conscientious, you know, marksmanship. He's firing at somebody that appears just to be an opposing warrior, but it just happens to be whom? Ahab. Because this is a judgment that now is pending upon him, and this is the means by which in combat, contrary to what God wanted him to do, he is going to meet his demise. It pierces between the armor. That's what it says. It's hard for us to imagine that back then there was an armor that was worn. We usually, it's difficult for us to associate by the standards we see, for instance, the Crusaders in, and yet these other ones preceding them by thousands of years. How does that work? Well, they had an armor. They apparently were finding that in battle that would save you from most of the weapons that could be used against you. But this one, this arrow, found its mark between the coverings. And so that reminds me of another scripture that I think is important, and that's Ephesians 6. Why is that important? A couple of reasons, and I'm just going to refer you there to be able to maybe see what part of the armor you might have that's vulnerable in Ephesians chapter 6, you're familiar with it, and I know that. It's not going to be an intended big study. But it says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So let me say this. It doesn't matter what armor you're wearing, even if, in fact, it is the spiritual armor that's being presented. If in this narration, the beginning of, of what we call the sightings or descriptions of the armor, if you do not have a strength in the Lord and in the power of his might, you're just wearing a costume. Any of us are. You've seen that as a little kid, especially boys, because that's what I once was. Man, if I could wear a costume that looked like my dad's World War II outfit, I was able to take on anything. And I would go into his drawers 
and I would find his colonel's wings, the eagles. I'd put those on. I was totally out of uniform because I thought it was cool also to have the chevrons on the sleeves. So I don't know why I thought it was cool to wear eagles on my collars and then cut out cardboard chevrons for my sleeves, which all of a sudden deranked me. <laughs> and I didn't like the khakis, so I'd wear my own black britches. I was totally <laughs> a uniform abominator. <laughs> but I felt really strong going to school. I realize now I was pretty much probably just laughed at as opposed to feared. But in this text of scripture, then notice what will work for you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. So we won't go into the whole armor of God because it's listed there. But it says stand against the wiles of the enemy. That means you're not going to get moved. And you're not going to get moved not based on your uniform, not based on the armor that you're wearing, but based on your strength in the Lord and the power of his might. Jehoshaphat depended not how clever he had been on the battlefield, even to cry out, but the fact that in crying out, he was saying, my strength is in you, Lord, and it's your power that's going to deliver me. And God just moves in sovereignly to deliver him in the time in which his life was in jeopardy. Cry out to the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. One of the things that you're hearing about today, current events, is the Asbury Revival. Yeah. But you know what? We don't have to go to Asbury. That could happen anywhere that God's people choose to call upon the name of the Lord and say, we're making a stand here. It's so true. They're getting thousands of people. I'm going to tell you something. Asbury is a seminary college. I mean, that's predominantly what it's known for. And I shared with you, I think, last week or Thursday. What I don't remember. But I shared something to the effect. might have been some men's breakfast is this. People are responding because basically they want a spiritual event to convince them of God. The reason that their curiosity is provoked is because they're missing something that they've always had at their disposal, the presence of God. Christie, as I began to think about this, was born in 1970. The first revival, at least that has been taken notice of, in Asbury was in 1970. My father-in-law, mom, they had just given birth to Christy in November. Isn't that cool? What if, because of that birth, <laughs> there was a revival? I could be married to a revivalist. <laughs> I didn't even know it. We could have had 10,000 people on this side. But what I'm saying is, whenever there is this this manifestation of the work of God, it's not how do I pursue it. It's saying, how about standing on the ground that God's given to you and trusting in the Lord that as you deal with him out of a sincere and pure desire to be used, he will meet you at that place, at that point. I'm firmly convinced that revival, or what we would call better, I think, phrase, an awakening, 
is available at any time people simply say, that's what I want. I've come to the conclusion that everything I pursued adds up to nothing and blows away like chaff. What I want in these latter days is to be in the presence of God as he says that he will never leave me nor forsake me and as his spirit has been poured out, that's what I want. Not to make anything of myself, but to make much of God for as long as he wants revelation to be given. Wouldn't it be cool if in a community like this, a church, that churches see an outpouring of the Spirit because people are waiting upon Him wholesomely, full of integrity, in truth, standing their ground, obviously wearing the armor of God, and the Holy Spirit just says, Ah, I like that. I'm going to do a work that you're going to like. Yeah, and it's just cool to think what if 10% of this community decided to make a surge on the churches? Is there anything that would stop God from doing it in a battle that the Lord would say is his to fight and actually that we're in on presently as believers? So take a note of that, that the first premise right now in the armor which Ahab could not have been saved by and what we are to take note of, is there something in the armor that you believe has given you a false sense of security? You've put it on seemingly, but you haven't put on Christ. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is a discipline. Not even sure how necessarily to explain it or how it works, but I would suggest it begins with prayer in the morning, in the evening, around the table, on your walks, I believe that it is something that is so imperative before you believe that what it is you're wearing, no matter what it is, gifts and talents, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants to be your all in all. Ahab thought in the chariot that he was in and the disguise that he wore, he was in safe company. They were going to go after Jehoshaphat. Little did he know that providentially that would not be true. Jehoshaphat called on God. He was saved. Ahab thumbed his nose, thinking disguise and a chariot would carry him. The arrow pierced in between the joints of his armor. And so when you look at armor, can you get pierced between the joints of what you think is protecting you? When it's in fact God all along who just wanted you to cry out to him, remove the facade, quit playing games, Moving back so that I can <laughs> close on this. He's wounded. He recognizes it. It's too late to change the outcome because his wound is a mortal wound. Mortal means that associated with it, death is inevitable. Have you noticed, any of you, that in the paper there's quite a few people that are dying lately? It's not God's fault. It's actually what he said would happen. There's an appointment for death. Anybody that's a human being and hasn't yet been taken into heaven, we're going to die. And we never know necessarily the means by which we shall, but we shall if the Lord tarries. And the older you get, the sooner you realize that's a reality. But people are dying. And some have 
amazingly made it into their 90s. Jimmy Carter, we've talked about him inciting the presidents that we've had, that in the 46 years or 47 years of our presidencies dating back to, I think I took it to Gerald Ford and then Carter was following him. He's now 98, I think, am I correct? And he's on hospice care. He's had a good run. And he's been a faithful teacher of the Bible in a Sunday school class since the time he's left his presidency. But it's his time. And there are others that are following. And those are appointments that God will keep. The question is, for any of us here, are we going to be kept in him based on our commitment of faith and belief that we're saved? It's just really interesting because where I'm at right now at 65, soon to be 66, I can see my dad more clearly than I have before. And the reason I bring this up is to say that life has a time in which reflection both on God's faithfulness and all that he's brought us through to his faithfulness and what he yet remains to desire to do in my life, your life. I desire that great things still can be done in my life. But I know that inevitably when I read a headline that somebody's passed, my first question is, are they with the Lord? Or did they squander their last breath on the things that Ahab did in idolatry and in the pursuit of the vanity of the will of people in his life and in their life? The battle in verse 35 Increased that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. And the blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. And then, verse 36, as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his own country. What's happening? The prophecy that was given by the prophet that was rejected who spoke the truth is now coming to pass. They realize that Ahab is dead and they scatter with no confidence that remains in them. Their confidence was in a corrupt man, not in a powerful God. The tribe they would hold ultimately, and that would be Judah and Benjamin, the spiritual heritage of Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat, the one son that out of a lineage of failures would hold to the tenets of faith and of God, he's saved. The same predicament, the same battlefield. We have a battlefield that's the same, and the predicaments are only by variables apart from one another. Who are you going to call upon? How will you know? So the king died and was brought to Samaria. That's the capital area for the 10 northern tribes. And it says being brought there, they buried the king in Samaria. And then 38, a washing up of his life. Boy, he could have used that earlier, a washing of his soul. 
a work of God deeply that was always available to him when he'd heard Elijah give the word that God had relented and he didn't have to die as he now did die. You'd think his heels would have clicked. He would have chosen to say, God's my God and I'm going to do in the time and balance that I have what's necessary to turn my nation around and my family around. My family's messed up. I got to stop this. But he didn't. So the chariots being washed of the blood at the pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken. And that's the imagery of a carnal kingdom that he had. And they're not grieving over him. They're just doing the stuff that's the daily maintenance in life. No procession that we know of now. The end of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his fathers and then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. He's going to be a bad one, by the way, because Ahab never took the opportunity to make an adjustment in his life that was necessary precisely before his life was taken. Oh, how adjustments are so necessary to be made. And the cool thing is, if you watch people that are really just walking with the Lord, they've committed themselves to the things of God, it may be on a pace slower than you, but when you watch them, it's an amazing transformation as you see the Spirit of God upon them, working through them, so inspiring. You never would have believed it had your eyes not seen it. And very difficult to convince those necessarily closest to them. Not the same person. This person's amazing. Because that's the testimony that God wants to give to all of us. His life ends. Jehoshaphat will have a little bit of an outline given to him, which we'll move into next week. But let's just review some of the things that we were talking about. Churches ought not to be unequally yoked by trying to do things that are, if you would, business plans or the kinds of things that seduce a culture to tend it. We've seen in churches where the worship band doesn't play what we played. They're back into Led Zeppelin. They're trying to seduce those who are the Zers, a generation lost, by introducing them to secular music and then, oh, by the way, we're going to worship God now. There couldn't be a, a bigger fallacy. That, In fact, I'll say who did it. That was Andy Stanley, whose father was a huge contributor to expositional Bible study and preaching. What's Andy doing? He tried to use a gimmick. And you can actually go back and see it, and you're going, oh, my word, how could that possibly have gone over where you'd open your worship service with Led Zeppelin? I mean, those guys, a part of Led Zeppelin, as I recall, they've lost one, 
there's only three remaining and those guys aren't any younger and their old hits are not going to save them. They need to have a relationship with the Lord. And their song being played in a church of God, blasphemy, in my opinion. And from a Bible teacher that should have known better, don't have a clue as to why. Andy, what are you thinking? And Andy was chastened by believers. I never followed Led Zeppelin. Never did. So read Ephesians 6 and ask yourself, is it by the power of the Lord that your armor is put on and thereby correctly suited, tailored for you? Awesome. If it's like me, putting on your dad's eagles on your collar and chevrons on your sleeve and then, oh yeah, I forgot, Boy Scout merit badges on my chest. I look so stupid trying to be somebody so impressive. They're Christians that are like that. I look so stupid. I think I look less stupid these days. Second Corinthians 10, verse 4, you can look it up. It's what you can do. Paul cites this. He was in spiritual warfare in the Corinthian church for those people. But the bottom line is, is that it deals with taking down strongholds. And I'm just going to go there very quickly. I think I can do it quickly. I sure hope I'm right on my reference. It's titled Spiritual Warfare. I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold towards you. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war against the flesh or according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He was a powerful orator. He was a powerful personality, but he was also very often confused in his meekness and carrying truth. But when you do see this, it indicates that arguing can be one of those things in which you've entered into that will ultimately render only devastating results. Stay away from those arguments. Carnality in this can't be participating in spiritual success. 